Hi, I'm Lisa Lancer-Rose, an award-winning author, educator, and dog trainer with a passion for animals. Now more than ever, people feel alienated from the natural world and worried about animal life. Join me and my guests as we take you deep into the lives and minds of our fellow creatures, hoping to forge a bond strong enough to save us all on This Animal Life. about a hundred of them, you said? And yeah, not all at once, but sort of cycling through there were that many. I mean, there were dozens on it at any given time. I thought, this must be all the caracaras in a, in a large radius know about this, because it's so predictable. It happens at the same spot, the same time, every sure. week. And uh, so... They had a, their group on. They did, yeah. Somebody asked me for a mag... <laughs> somebody had asked me, a writer had asked me for a magazine story, you know, where could I, where could I find caracaras in Texas. It's like, well, this is the only place I know where you could actually predictably see them and get really close to them and get good pictures. So yeah. uh, that's where we went. I'd only read about it. I hadn't actually been there, but it was pretty extraordinary. Oh, that's cool. Let, let me introduce you because indeed, you guys, we just launched right into it. So this is Jonathan Myberg. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. He's an American journalist. Uh, author of A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Bird of Prey. It's a cross between geologic history, biography, travel, uh, and everything you ever wanted to know about Caracaras. Yeah, it's a it's a, an adventure in natural history yes. uh, starring the Caracaras. And um, yeah, I found it mesmerizing. I, I need to go back and read it more slowly when I have more time <laughs> because, you know, it's immersive, uh, deliberately so. It's a, a book of narrative nonfiction. And it kind of reminds me of some of the best nature writers. It honestly did. Like uh, E.O.S. Wilson, Lauren Isley. These are some of my favorites. Uh, Diane Ackerman. Oh, thank you. Gosh. Unabashed <laughs> empathy. Unapologetic <laughs> empathy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Terry Tempest Williams. All the best names. I enjoyed the heck out of it. But you're. Uh, it seems like so far anyway, maybe that's about to change. I don't know. But you're best known as a lead singer and songwriter for Shearwater. Yeah, that's right. I've been a professional musician for going on 20 years now. Um, and my band Shearwater is still making records and hopefully will return to live performance at some point when that's possible. And then I started another band called Loma a couple of years ago that, oh, yeah, uh, I saw that I also put out two records and we're starting a new one in the, in the winter. Somebody needs to update your Wikipedia page to include this book. <laughs> you know, the, by the rules of Wikipedia, I'm not allowed to do that, but you're quite right. I could get I somebody else to do it. Yeah, you should. So let's go back to Caracaras. Uh, you were just telling yeah. me about uh, visiting them in Texas, where you saw uh, about 100 or so of them at um, a kind of blind. Caracaras. Yeah, yeah, crested Caracaras. That's sort of a, a blind, yeah, set up in the lower Rio Grande Valley. So, um, But that's a strange place to see. I mean, that's the we're, you're talking about the northern edge of the range of all Caracaras. And uh, one thing that I do want to make clear that, that seems to have gotten lost often when talking about this book, is there's more than one species of Caracara. There are 10 species. Yeah, you told me that the other day, uh, you know, and I've seen that, of course, that there are 10. But um, your book makes it so clear. Oh, good. I'm glad you to hear could. that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, anybody read, read your book, it, it, why would they need to be corrected? Because you, well, you address each one in their, in their separate habitats. Yes. The thing is that I think because there's only one that gets seen in North America, um, oh. 
uh, or in, I, think, I guess, because Mexico is part of North America, that's not entirely accurate. But in, in the United States, certainly there's only one species that gets seen and people just call it a caracara. And so it, because that's a funny word by itself, um, I think it, it, people think of that as a very singular creature. Um, mm-hmm. But there are 10 species and, and what caracaras are is a branch of the falcon family um, that is very different from what you think of when you think of a falcon. We think of like a peregrine falcon or a kestrel, you know, one of these hunting birds. They're really fast. They're really, really good at hunting on the wing. Yeah. And um, usually think of them as aloof. Yes. Aloof and kind of solitary. Yeah. And and uh, the caracaras are just none of these things. <laughs> they, uh, they're, if, if you imagine, it's, it's sort of like the, that lineage uh, produced a group of crows instead. And in South America, where most of the species live, uh, there aren't crows. Um, mm-hmm. There are some jays in the tropics which are related to crows, but um, for the most part, there aren't any crows in South America, which is something that uh, Darwin commented on when he visited there as a young whippersnapper of about 21 years old aboard the Beagle back in 1833, 34. Um, he said that the caracaras supplied the place of magpies, crows, mm-hmm. and ravens which are uh, well distributed throughout the rest of the world, but absent in South America. And one of the mysteries that this book delves into is, well, why is that? How did that happen? Um, And there is an answer for it. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's a quiz. (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't have to. (laughs) Do I have to read the book and find out? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we could leave it as a mystery. Why? Why is that? Well, the book isn't in a way it is a, it's a mystery because it, it starts off with a with a mystery that um, I stumbled into completely by mistake. Let's talk about that because here you are you're a musician. You were a musician at the time, right? This was uh, your adventure began in 1997, right? 1997, but at that point I was the same age as Darwin. I was 21, 22, that? and uh, I'd gotten this strange traveling fellowship called a, a Thomas J. Watson fellowship. You were in graduate school, right? You no, I was for just it. out of just out of undergrad. Oh, okay. And I was an English major in in undergraduate school. At, um, I saw that. And um, was it religion, divinity, something like that? Uh, yeah, I had a minor in religion. I just took a bunch of religion courses because I was interested in it. So I wasn't heading for the seminary or anything. Although, no. ironically, that's where Darwin was headed. But but he was charmed and fascinated by the Caracara. By the Caracaras, yeah, he was. It, and he met them in the same place I did, which is the Falkland Islands. Now, did you knew that, right? When you went to the Falkland Islands, were you looking no. for them? Because you, you tell the story, you, were, you got this fellowship, uh, and it was not to study birds. You weren't going to be an ornithologist. No, the purpose of the fellowship was to, uh, to do a study of community life at the ends of the earth. The Watson Fellowship is funny because it lets you propose a project that you design yourself in one or more non-US countries that you've never been to. I think with the, okay. with the idea of kind of just blowing your blowing the minds of of some promising young undergraduates. Is it still available? It still is, yeah. Yes. In fact, I've I've worked on the selection committee for it for a number of years. Oh, what made you propose that? Well, um, I had never really been outside the southeastern United States at that point, and um, I did an island ecology program on an island off the coast of Georgia called St. Catharines Island as part of my college education. And I thought it was just a way to get rid of my whole science requirement at once because I wasn't interested in science. About that. (laughs) But I figured I would actually learn something if I was learning it in a place rather than Mm -hmm. than sitting in a classroom. And and it's not like that completely changed my mind or my life exactly, but it did get me thinking about the natural world and natural systems. 
And so 21-year-old me pitched this wacky proposal about going to all these, the most far-flung places I could think of, some of which were just looking at a map and going, well, that looks far away. Yeah. <laughs> and then actually turning up there. But because there's no Gulf Stream, it's a bit colder and there are penguins there. Penguins and um, striated caracas. Yes, exactly. The, the thing was that when I went to Stanley, um, I realized you could go to these islands where, where there were breeding colonies of penguins. So you went looking for penguins. I just thought that'd be fun to see. Who wouldn't want to see penguins? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I went out to this island called Sea Lion Island. And uh, on this island, I saw the penguins. I saw elephant seals. And uh, it was extraordinary. But I, I was walking up to this one colony of... Um, actually, I described this in the book. Let me pull out the passage. It was a visit to one of these islands via a two-engine Falkland Islands government air surface plane that introduced me to striated caracaras. Sea Lion Island wasn't the wildest of the outer Falklands, and it didn't look like much from the air. A gently sloping table of rock and pasture ringed with dark cliffs and pale beaches, small enough to walk around in a few hours. Sheep had grazed away most of its tussock, which was a giant grass that, that used to cover um, a lot of the Falklands, okay. and it still lingers in a few places. Uh, but the island was no longer a farm, and its former residents had begun to reclaim it. Elephant seals lounged on its beaches, while penguins played in the surf, and severe-looking seabirds called giant petrels nested at the end of a long sandy spit. In the center of the island, ruddy-headed geese and red-breasted meadowlarks paced among low shrubs covered in tiny, astringent berries. I walked Sea Lion's coast all morning and sat down to rest on its southern cliffs, looking down on colonies of rockhopper penguins and cormorant-like birds called imperial shags. The shags turned their slender beaks and bright blue eyes toward me for a moment, then resumed fortifying their nests with beakfuls of mud and seaweed. Their long curved necks and functional wings distinguished them from the squat, flightless penguins, but they'd been to the same tailor. Both species were black above and white below, with whimsically ornamented heads, a curly cue of black feathers and orange nasal waddles for the shags, a spiky yellow crest for the red-eyed rockhoppers. As long as I didn't move, the birds acted as if I wasn't there, and at the base of the cliff, long coils of giant kelp curled and uncurled in the foaming waves. I was contemplating the blue-black water stretching away toward Antarctica when I heard a rush of wings and a faint clicking of talons on the shale and turned to face a pair of young striated caracaras, the first I'd ever seen. Unlike the penguins and shags, they were unmistakably interested in me. One took a few steps in my direction and cocked its head like a dog. A gift seemed appropriate, but I didn't have any food, so I fished a pen from my pocket and dropped it on the ground. The two birds gazed at it for a moment as if deciding what to do, and then one stepped forward to seize the pen with its large, dexterous foot, an almost parrot-like gesture, and looked up to me as if to say, is this all you've got? Then its companion lunged for the pen, flapping its wings and screeching, and the tumbling pair chased each other over the lip of the cliff. Wait, I thought. Come back. Explain yourselves. Back in Stanley, I asked around about the pen-stealing birds and soon learned two things that they were called Johnny Rooks, a rakish nickname from the whaling days, and that they weren't, generally speaking, held in high regard. A few people said they were vicious pests. Many simply called them cheeky. I'd heard New Yorkers call city pigeons winged rats and Texans muttering darkly about urban invasions of great-tailed grackles, but it seemed especially British to accuse a bird of impertinence. I couldn't help wanting to see them again, and it felt a little like fate when I met a British ornithologist who was bound for the Falklands' wildest edges to study them. Nice. So that was the, 
if you if you imagine so, sort of a, a hawk crossed with a crow, you you get about you know, or or a crow built on a falcon chassis. That's you've said. What was it? Um, looked like somebody had uh, ten attempts to build a crow on a falcon. Yeah, chassis. exactly. That's what the caracaras look like. They they um they're all pretty much at ease on the ground walking around, uh, which is something yeah. that the falcons are more almost like a roadrunner not quite chicken -like. a, a little bit they, um the, it's more like i mean darwin compared them to pheasants the way that they that they run okay and, yeah uh, yeah if you know pheasants you know they can actually run very fast and striated <laughs> caracaras in particular are really at ease on the ground and uh, like to to run and walk as much as they like to fly although they're also very good at flying but the falklands sit in this uh, that part of the uh, uh, at the edge of the polar vortex which creates these sort of endless westerly and southwesterly gales down there. And some days, if you open your wings, you just get blown away. <laughs> so I think it's, it's probably, <laughs> it's less energetically costly oh. to walk and run. So that's sort of a um, an energy saving uh, benefit. Sure. And then also, um, it's just more helpful for trying to get where you want to go sometimes. So you don't get blown yeah. away. And what they feed on down there, uh, mostly is the chicks and eggs of seabirds, like albatrosses and penguins and burrowing. Because they're ground nesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also the um, the leavings of, of seals, either through like carrion, dead pups, that kind of thing. Um, also seal okay. excrement. I mean, uh, Johnny Rooks, if sometimes I, you'll come up to a... Actually crossed my mind. I was like, hmm. A, a lot of the... That's, <laughs> Do I say know, that? On the, <laughs> it's on the menu for a lot of caracaras, actually. I mean, one of the things that's so striking about most of the species of caracaras is how varied their diets are. They eat anything. Darwin mentioned that Chimango caracaras, which are a smaller species that's common in, in um, southern South America, Patagonia, that kind of thing, um, often around farms and stuff. The, so, uh, But often you'll see some striated caracaras uh, sitting next to a snoozing sea lion, and they're just sort of look like they're waiting for something to happen, and they are, <laughs> because the sea lion, after it takes a nice long nap after feeding in the ocean, well, you know, just like have a nice big crap right there, and then the then it's like it's lunchtime for yeah. the caracaras. Soft yeah, they just they just they love this stuff. They fill up their crops with it. And sure, my dogs would do that. They're essentially okay. eating squid, and oh processed yeah squid. you know partially digested squid and so uh they really depend uh, in in large measure on the ocean for their diet those caracaras yeah the striated caracaras yeah not all of them i hear there are 10 species there are in fact 10 species <laughs> hammer this point home um how do i describe it all the caracaras have this sort of like dubious but interested kind of expression about them um, they're always on the lookout for new sources of food um, they seem very attuned to cause and effect, um, very much like crows or ravens. Um, they just seem to know what's going on and always be on the lookout for new ways that they might be able to exploit their environment. There was a wonderful experiment that I talk about in the book with Chimango caracaras, um, where a group of Argentine researchers took uh, a group of them out of the wild, uh, separated them into two, two, three different groups. One was a control that nothing happened to. Um, another was a group they called observer birds, and another group was demonstrator birds. They gave the demonstrator birds uh, a set of plexiglass boxes that had food inside to see if they could figure out how to open them and get into them. And they let the observer birds watch them do this. Well, a lot of the demonstrator birds did figure out how to do it and how to get the food. But the birds that had watched them do it then had a higher success rate when they were allowed to try it out for themselves. And this is a trait that all the caracaras seem to share is that they're really good at learning 
from each other and either from even from other species um, about what is food and how to get at it. And uh, I've, I've seen striated caracaras adapt to food resources they'd never seen before uh, within a period of a week or two. So the, it's it it's a really extraordinary ability well, that they have. And it, it speaks to the kind of mind that they have, which is very curious. Yeah, it's curious. It's social. It's in, in they investigate everything that they can. And in the Falklands, uh, there's been so little um, penalty for penalty. them being like this. I, I was when we talked earlier, and also it, from reading your book, that direct gaze, the um, the affect of uh, yeah. what are you and how can I make use of you, is extreme. I mean, that's part of the cheekiness. It's yes. extremely forward. Yeah, cheeky is they just don't act the way that you think wild animals are supposed no. to act. You no, they're that... they're equal or superior is exactly. their assumption. That's their starting point. Yeah, they seem like they they have just as much right to be here as you. And by the way, they're not afraid of you. Oh no! So, but if they were going to steal young from the albatross, mm -hmm. if they're going to stand there and wait, I mean, it, it, there seems to be a payoff for being that assertive. Oh, very much so. And actually, um, the the time when I think that's really important. Uh, is in the winter because in the winter months in the austral winter which is our summer um, the seabirds all leave they stay at sea they don't come back to land mm -hmm. um, they can feed at sea they can drink seawater and filter out the salt through their salt glands um, they have no need of land at all when they're not breeding but the caracaras can't swim mm -hmm. and cannot follow them so the caracaras then have to sit there on these islands and get through this period which means they have to switch their food resources entirely and figure out something else to eat uh, while the seabirds are away. And I've been to islands in the Falklands where, I mean, there's an astonishing density of caracaras on one island called Steeple Jason that figures a lot in the book, which has huge albatross and penguin colonies on it. And uh, in the summertime, there were one year, there were like 72 pairs of adults and almost as many, again, younger birds. It takes them a long time to reach maturity, almost five years. And so uh, I went back in the winter then another year and thought, well, how many of these birds will still be here on this island? And the astonishing answer was all of them. The same number were there. But when, <laughs> instead of feeding on seabird colonies, um, a lot of them were digging in the ground and eating uh, grubs and grass grubs and earthworms, which is really interesting to me, especially because those species are in fact introduced by people along with sheep farming. That's not something they were eating a thousand years ago. No, there. it puts me in mind of coyotes, raccoons. Exactly. Yeah, yeah they're this kind of animal. Um, and when you when you meet them, you think, well, why isn't this bird everywhere? And this was the question Darwin had. Yeah. Because they're in the Falklands and a few islands off Tierra del Fuego, and that is it for this species. There are about as many of them as there are giant pandas. But there doesn't seem to be any reason why they couldn't adapt to almost every environment on this well, planet. Well, you wonder. I mean, they, there's there's um, been a few captive ones. There there are a fair number of captive striated caracaras in the United Kingdom, uh, for reasons I explained in the book, which is a yeah. Uh, I hope we'll talk about a few of those individuals. Okay, we can. Well, they, the what I can tell you right now is that uh, some of them have escaped and had some really interesting adventures. There was one in particular named Louis. Uh, who lived lives, I believe, still at the London Zoo. Uh, and he got out for about two weeks and walked around North London. And there literally some, walked around. Literally, North. he was seen walking down the Kilburn High Street. 
And there is some. Can you I found, imagine? I know. I I would I would have loved to have been there on that day, but uh, there are some great little newspaper articles about this. <laughs> and they uh, he was seen at one point quote ripping into a whole cooked chicken, and. Uh the zoo got him back two weeks later and, you know, weighed him and found he was none the worse for wear. He lived in the city for two weeks, despite the fact that he had no experience of this. His what a time he must have had. had no experience of this. You know, he had a, he had a, a big time. Yeah. So, so you do think that if they, if they were able to, to get somewhere else that they, they might do okay. But the problem is that geographically they're really stuck. There's nowhere for them to go. There's no land in the world at that latitude besides Southern South America. Are these pretty low lying too? I mean, I'm the thinking islands? about global warming and sea rise and- Oh yes, it's a big concern. <sighs> it's, it's, I mean, the Falklands are gonna do nothing but get smaller. And I talk about this in the book about what, you know, what do we wanna do about this? Mm -hmm. Striated caracaras in the Falklands are recovering from, from years of persecution, especially in the early 20th century. There was a bounty on them. They're not always the most welcome bird, are they? No, people perceive them as a threat to their sheep, mm -hmm. mainly. And yeah. uh, I saw vultures were almost completely eradicated in North America. Yeah, um, and and they're back for the um, same reason that, that yes. uh, they they would be seen feeding on a, a on a dead calf, yep. and they were blamed for the murder. Yeah, and it's with with striated caracaras. I'm always careful to say like it's not that they do not eat sheep. Um, but what they don't seem to eat is healthy sheep. Um, when sheep get cast, which they, they sheep sometimes uh, they're not, they've been bred to not be especially bright um, or resourceful. And sometimes sheep just fall over and can't get up. Um, I and never heard that. <laughs> it, it happens. <laughs> um, and so that'll, it, it is. And, or they'll get stuck on the, they'll get caught out by a tide and end up stranded on the beach. Mm. Or they'll, um, or ewes, which are allowed to lamb in the field, will will have a tough time during lambing, and the caracaras will, will attack them there on the few islands that where there are sheep and caracaras. They're looking for easy pickings. Exactly. Yeah. They they want an easy meal. They what they don't seem to do is go after healthy sheep. Mm. Um, they they would much rather not work that hard. Yeah, it's the same with vultures. Um, there's an island called Saunders Island where there's a, a working farm there, and. Uh, at the farm settlement, um, there are there's a crowd of caracaras uh, that does not touch uh, the poultry, you know, the ducks, the geese. Um, they don't bother the dogs. <laughs> they don't. Um, but what they do is they sit and wait for um, one of the farmers to go out and feed the pigs every day, which they do with two uh, dead geese. And so this crowd of caracaras arrives at the pig pen and they wait for Susan to come out. Uh, and feed them the geese, and then they just go crazy and like are chowing down on whatever little bits that the pigs leave left over. Uh, but they're very well behaved about it. And a couple of them actually have uh, have figured out that she drives over in her Land Rover, and they'll actually fly to the Land Rover and then just take a free ride out to the pig. Oh, <laughs> that's the cutest. <laughs> they're adorable, they're, but they're very they're well behaved is what I'm trying to say. A scavenger cross with a Muppet. They're very Muppety. Um, I have had many moments looking at them since um, where it just you can't stop from laughing because they are just so funny and it's so easy to identify with them and put yourself in their place. Yes, um, I wanted to talk with you about that. I was I was thinking you, you said that um, direct gaze, you know, I was thinking about that quite a bit, actually, because a, a lot of birds look at you sideways. I used to raise finches, you know, they'll, when they're looking at something they turn their head, turn the head. 
Uh, but these birds look straight at you they like do. a dog. Yeah, and you look even... in the eye too. Yeah, I had a coyote look me in the eye. I was in the car and it was crossing the road and we we braked and it looked straight through the windshield right into our eyes. Yeah, as if it can tell yeah. that you're in charge of the car. Yeah, so they look straight at you and um, the same way that we do, the same way that dogs do. And you had said, how did you describe it? You said you called it forthright. Yeah. And um, that they don't look past you like other falcons. They look into you, which is both charming and unnerving, which yeah. reminded me of that moment with the coyote because um, there was this recognition, I guess, automatic animal recognition in me that yeah. I was being looked at by a kind of equal. Exactly. Yeah. They look at you and you can tell they think, okay, you're like me. Yes. In some fundamental way. Despite the fact that when you're talking about birds, I mean, the last time we had a common ancestor with them, <laughs> we were amniotes. You know, we were the only amphibians laying eggs in the swamp. And it's so they've, they've over time, you know, it's been like 150 million years, which really, when, because you should double it because we've been on separate journeys that whole time. It's like 300 million That's years. That's a great point of yeah. evolutionary time uh, for us to, to diverge from that point and then be able to come back together cognitively enough that you can communicate with one another. In the case of you know, things like parrot stuff, you can actually have conversations in your language with them. And, and birds have, you know, they've evolved a forebrain like we have, but they've done it out of a different structure in their brain. So they built their own. I should add here that, that birds of prey aren't known for being especially brainy in this way, which is part of why I think caracaras have tended to be kind of neglected. Um, or, or people who, who uh, you and I talked about this a little bit a couple of days ago, that, um, yeah. that falconers, people who deal with raptors, with birds of prey, often don't really know what to make of caracaras. They're not and, interested because they don't do the work. Yeah. <laughs> they don't do their work. Yeah, they don't do what birds of prey are supposed to do. They, <laughs> they, they're not They have noble. no use for them. Yeah, so they get all these sort of nasty epithets. And I mean, even Darwin called them false eagles who ill become so high a rank. <laughs> And I think he was joking. Young, young Darwin was try, tried to be funny sometimes. Older Darwin kind of dispensed with that. But the, uh, there was another naturalist who's a major character in my book, actually, um, named William Henry Hudson, mm -hmm. who was born about 10 years after Darwin came through Patagonia. He was, uh, lived, was born in the Pampas, that, the big, vast, grassy plains south of Buenos Aires. And so he grew up there and was absolutely in love with the, the wildlife. Uh, he just was in love with the natural world. And, uh, but he later writing about caracaras uh, said that uh, they've been called uh, uh, vile, cowardly, contemptible birds by people who really ought to know better. Uh, he said that about Chimango caracaras, the one we mentioned uh, that mm -hmm. did the study with the boxes, uh, he said uh, a, a species so cosmopolitan in its habits would have had a whole volume to itself in England, being only a poor foreigner it has had only a few unfriendly paragraphs bestowed upon it. <laughs> and it's, unfriendly paragraphs. it's still kind of true. Uh, there's something mm -hmm. about caracaras that repels raptor people. Uh, but I, I hope that I hope. Right. That will so they're classified as falcon and they're never going to get love there. Well, not, not if your idea of the perfect falcon is a peregrine falcon, but there no. is no perfect falcon. I think it's because they're, they're looking at it um, from their reference point yeah. and what, what they want out of a raptor. Do you think it's also because they're South American? Yes, absolutely. 
Um, South America gets dumped on again and again and again and again by people from the Northern world. Mm -hmm. And it, that's, I think it's clouded our judgment and has kept us from seeing how special it is uh, in all kinds of ways, um, geographically, ecologically, uh, anthropologically. Um, it, it is, it's a very separate world um, from any other continent. And part of that is because South America was not even joined to North America at all uh, for about 100 million years, and they only reconnected um, about three to five million years ago. For 30 million years, South America was completely surrounded by ocean like Australia is. Okay. And so it produced, and this is after the Cretaceous extinctions, and it produced its own world of, uh, of wildlife. Uh, we have three uh, ambassadors from that world that live in the continental United States now um, okay. that are pretty common and that um, most people don't think about in this way. Do you have, can you guess what they are? <laughs> no, I don't want to guess which ones they are. They're funny. They're funny. They're animals. funny? Yeah. You've seen them. No, you're talking about the possum. That's one. Okay. You ever wonder why there's one marsupial in North America? Yes. Yes. That's it really why. bugs me. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, marsupials are from uh, South America slash Antarctica. Um, okay. The nearest relative of all the Australian. Is that nope. Here, I think that's. What have you done? Oh, they found me. <laughs> uh, the the nearest relative of all the Australian marsupials actually lives in the forests in Chile. This thing called the monito del monte, and there uh, there are many species of marsupials. Um, all possum related uh, in South America, but people don't think about them up here very much. I mean, there's there's like a there's a possum that's like an otter called a yapak or a water possum oh. that uh, lives in tropical streams and catches fish and crustaceans and things. And they're they're unusual among marsupials because they uh, I mean they have webbed feet and they uh, uh, both males and females have a pouch and the males. Uh, you know, wouldn't seem to have a need of a pouch, but they have a good use for them, which is that when they go swimming, they tuck their genitals into the pouch before they go <laughs> swim. I was just thinking, I'm going to have to cut this. I'm not cutting that. No, they have a, they have a built-in <laughs> swimsuit. And uh, and when you've, if you've been to South, the tropical South America and you see what some of the fish are like in some of these rivers, <laughs> as I did swimsuit. in the book, um, you start to see why you, you might not want to have your bits dangling. Um, <laughs> so anyway, it, it's, uh, so we have a we have a, a South American marsupial that's come up here. Mm -hmm. um, the other ones are oh I don't know, not the kind of animals. You see funny them all the time. Animals. Weird, small at night usually. Oh bats? No. No, I'm only at night. Mostly at night. Small, funny man. I don't get uh, out at night. Armadillo. Oh, of course. That's you ever looked at an armadillo name. and gone like, what is the deal what with the... this thing? It's, it's crazy. Uh, they are, it's like they a are, pangolin. Yeah, um, but not. <laughs> They're not that closely <laughs> related to pangolins at all. Um, armadillos, nine-banded armadillos, the ones we have in the U.S., are the northernmost representative of that group that originated in South America, and it includes the common ancestor of um, armadillos, anteaters, and sloths. Sure. Uh, but the sloths takes me by surprise, though. Did you say the, uh, that a caracara has been up in the northwest? Yes, um, crested caracaras used to be in what's now the continental United States back in the Pleistocene, you know, in the days of the mammoths. Oh, so and this isn't recent. Tigers and, well, it is, though, um, because they disappeared. Um, when all these big animals went extinct, 
Uh, they seem to have retreated south uh, for a bit, and but now they're moving back north again, it seems. Because of warming or because of eradication of it's not they compete with crows nobody knows like why they're, exactly because <laughs> they're you can't good ask friends them. with vultures they, they will make out with vultures <laughs> yeah they yeah they preen each other they'll, they'll roost with yeah. them that we're talking about these northern crested caracaras here um and the northern crested caracara is the one that will preen will preen a vulture yeah that's the one that's been photographed doing it and they they especially seem to like black vultures and black vultures mm -hmm. um have been increasing in numbers um in northern they north america together. now for a while they uh they feed together they do their young yeah. play together uh, that i don't know yeah well i do oh you do oh, okay <laughs> great tell me something i don't know please yeah i did in my work here i found um i found that the young you know who was it joan morrison yes yeah i was listening to a lecture by dr joan morrison yeah um, she is the um the preeminent caracara researcher in north america well, then i am very well informed right yeah, now she's she's I, pretty I'll also she's, it in a week she's but, sort of best and almost only there's very few people that have have ever really studied caracaras any of them and and joan has spent uh, her entire career working on them in florida and, but that's wonderful that she's seen them playing together yes the young she was talking about how playful they are and they'll lie on their backs and they'll just pick things up and run, and run around with them and all as the adults will too the adults are very playful the caracaras like to play. I mean, the striated caracaras like crows do. will, yes, striated caracaras will play with anything. Like the pen. I want to yeah. go back to that. I have, you know what? As I was taking these notes, I thought we're we're never going to get through all this, and I'm I'm going to get all excited. We're going to jump all over the place, which we are, and um, I'm going to miss stuff. And no, we're we're, uh, we're getting through it. Though. Wonderful. We're, 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 we are. <laughs> we are. But. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm just bursting right now. With things well, I want to talk this to is about. this is the the feeling you're experiencing is exactly the one that I had as I started to research this, because one I was just stunned that there wasn't more about them written, um, and I thought, well, I'm I mean I'm a bird expert. I have no idea. What um, are you but, gonna do? <laughs> well, it, sometimes you're the one that there is, and so this is the story that came to me. And the more yeah. that I learned, the more you know, breathless I became about it. Yes, I'm just tumbling right now uh, <laughs> with them. She said that the young play with each other. They romp like puppies. She didn't say that. I'm saying that. Um, or as we've seen crows play, even adult crows will go sledding and, you know. Yeah. Yeah, they have a sense of fun. Yeah. But the fact that they will play with vultures. Mm-hmm. Years ago, when I first moved here, I mean, we have vultures up north. We have turkey vultures and black vultures where I'm from, mm -hmm. in Pennsylvania, New Jersey area. Yeah. Um, but down here, you just see so many more of them. In fact, yes. I lived in uh, in Tampa, and there's Tampa is a, a city, of course, and it's a, a heat sink. And in the daytime, there's always an updraft yeah. from the city, and there's just a constant circling of vultures. Mm -hmm. And the buildings on top, uh, at the top, there's one, I think it's SunTrust or something. It's got like a pyramid shape at the top. And you'd see vultures with uh, airing their wings out <laughs> all over it. Yeah. And I, I often thought if anybody ever made a um, a snow globe of Tampa, instead of snow, it would have vultures. <laughs> you would just <laughs> turn it over. And it, and it Wouldn't would that be awesome? That'd be amazing. I want that. <laughs> well, you, you have to remember that caracaras are part of this huge assemblage of um, carrion feeding birds that lived in both of the Americas during the Pleistocene. 
It really strikes me uh, because my interest in vultures when I first moved down here I, mm -hmm. to discover how dog-like, because that's our reference point. That, that was your reference yeah. point when you first saw them is like looking at you like a dog cocking its head. Um, yeah. How dog-like the vulture is. Uh, it's the only, um, if you go to a raptor center, they will often have injured vultures that can't be released and they just keep them all together. But they keep, the caretakers say that the only ones that ever interact with them, that they actually get quite personally fond of, or will even respond to their names and need, um, what do they call it, enrichment? Yes. <laughs> need like a Kong or puzzles and balls and yeah, all. Yeah, they need stuff to Are do. Are the vultures. Where they get bored and go crazy. Yeah. And, and it's the same with the caracaras, like these falconry centers in England that I went to. They would have all these different birds of prey. Um, and if you ask about the caracaras, the caretakers would either roll their eyes or get really excited. And they'd be like, oh, man, these are different. The, I went to one where they, they had a raven and a, a striated caracara um, kept right next door to each other. Is this Loki and Boo? Loki and Boo. Yeah. Loki was the raven and, and Boo's the striated caracara at Millet's Farm Falconry Center uh, in Oxford. Yes. I watched <laughs> these videos. I uh, The enrichment. I have bought friends some of those puzzles for their dogs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That I saw in the videos they're giving these birds. They love doing puzzles and the... Uh, I mean, there's... Well, well, we'll get to Tina in just a moment, but the... Yes. Um, but what the... The keeper's comment at with Loki and Boo was that those are the only two species out of all the birds that he kept that would poke their heads through the enclosure to see what was going on. And uh, usually with birds of prey, if you're going to do a flying demonstration with them, you have to wait until they're hungry uh, and you have to take them through the same routine over and over again um, so that they just get used to that this is how I get food. Um, Caracaras uh, need you to vary the routine. They'll do all kinds of wacky things that most birds of prey would never do, run through pipes. Um, or um, knock over garbage cans to see what's inside them, solve puzzles. Uh, and uh, it's just, it's a very different kind of mind that they have. Yes. And it reminds me of my border collies. Yeah. I mean, it's much more like that. Uh, they need and, a job to do. Yeah. They, they want to, and they want to interact with you. They want to do stuff yes. with you, whether they're hungry mm -hmm. or not. Um, mm -hmm. And this bird, Tina, that I wanted to talk about, I have a whole chapter about partly about Tina called the most intelligent bird in the world, uh, which is what her keeper called her. Um, but he uh, was a, a, a is retired is, yeah. um, a falconer. Tina was a, a striated caracara. Um, and he knew Tina from when she was quite young up until she was in her 30s. And it took him a long time of working with her to realize how different she was from the other birds of prey that he worked with. Because one day he, he, well, for one thing, he spent several years away from her and then yeah. came back. And with most birds of prey, they don't recognize you sometimes, even if you've been away for a few months, it's mm -hmm. it just, you have to start all over with them. This was, he'd been away for years and she said she was all over him like a dog, just calling and calling, jumping on his shoulders, running around. She was so excited to see him. And then one day he was cleaning out her cage and he, he dropped his keys and she jumped down, picked up his keys and ran over to the corner with them, holding them in her beak. <laughs> and he was like, is this bird trying to play a game with me? Now, that wouldn't be weird for, you know, for a cat or a dog or something. But you have to remember that for falconers, this is not the kind of behavior. Oh, and expect. it's cheeky. And it's cheeky. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but Jeff was delighted by this and he realized they started playing keep away. And uh, he thought, well, what else can this bird do? And yes. uh, Jeff started developing these devices to try to see if she could associate colors and objects with words. And Which is what Irene Pepperberg did with Alex. Precisely. Alex being that the African, famous African gray yeah. parrot yes. um, who had a sense of grammar. 
I mean, yeah. Alex is amazing, but but as she says, there is no reason to think that Alex was like especially intelligent, um, no. that he was any different from your ordinary no. African gray parrot. She said she chose him. She didn't go looking for the smartest African gray. She wanted an average. Tina could do these amazing things in flying demonstrations where Jeff would throw some uh, stuffed animals behind him. Um, it's like Nina, Nemo, Donald Duck, and Piglet. And he'd look at Tina and say, go find Nemo. And she'd jump down, run around the ground, pick up Nemo, come back and drop it in a bucket and get a food reward. I found that video. I'll, Isn't I'll that amazing sure it's in the watch. show notes. Yes. The, the, it's, uh, it's just, I'm glad these videos exist because if I were just describing these things, there are people who wouldn't believe me. No, but you're right. She does that. She could also tell, uh, he would throw out a set of different sized blocks or different shaped blocks rather. Um, you know, a, a cube and a, a sphere and a pyramid and get her to associate things with that. He could throw out a set of colored balls and ask the audience, like, which one she should get. And say they'll say the blue one, you know, and she'd go and get the blue one. He wow. could even, when she'd picked up Miss Piggy, he could say, wait, I've changed my mind, get Donald Duck instead. She'd put it down and get the other one. You know, um, I happen to have just interviewed somebody who participated in the Genius Dog Challenge. The mm -hmm. results of that study were recently published. And that's exactly the genius dog challenge to send them to go get uh, items by name. Oh yeah. Like Dr. Pilly and chaser mm -hmm. where uh, chaser knew um, over a thousand words, I think 1100 or so. And he was just starting to teach category and all that, but despite being unable to, to pronounce them, which is important, you know, people think of speech as a, as an indicator of intelligence. And um, so far as I know, there are no caracaras that quote unquote talk. That's um, right. Uh, Alex could say all these things too and make that's requests. That's part of what was so extraordinary about Alex is because parrots, um, probably we, partly by virtue of the incredible tongue that they have. Yeah. Um, well, but even even the ability to to mimic is in itself requires some physiological sure. equipment to be able to produce those. Sounds. But he could use these sounds purposefully. Yeah. Oh, he, yeah. Without a doubt. He didn't just react to the way he he used the language the the way Coco or Washo or. Yeah, and. His, it, which on the one hand seems amazing to us. On the other hand, um, parrots and, and also caracaras, um, and in fact, most birds make a variety of sounds that they use to communicate with each other and with members of other species. So it's not like in some ways that language is some amazing thing that, you know, it's, it's a, I mean, this is just, they, they normally do this. Uh, and yeah, why, uh, why are we so amazed? Is, is this something have culturally have we drifted because of um the notion that uh that animals were just automatons and it, it was all instinct and we were the only ones with with free will yeah for so long that we're rediscovering or is it because uh we've so alienated ourselves not not only by uh domesticating like hyper domesticating ourselves where now we we don't even have to have weather anymore you know yeah um uh and then also by destroying it well there, there is of course the you know there's the ethical consideration in that if you if if you have to confront the fact that we're not cognitively as special as we think um then what <laughs> how should we regard these creatures um, are they are they as much of an equal as uh, of us as uh, as the Caracara's gaze would suggest? So and, you think we've been on an ego trip? Yeah, and, sort of. Basically, you know, if like if you had to admit that that you really weren't particularly special, what would you then have to do? And so it, it's a um, that's a very you know once it, this is a, a a tangent, but I was once on a farm in New Zealand 
where I helped to, I mean, not really Sounds helped like very a much, but <laughs> I was once on a farm in New Zealand, a place called the Chatham Islands, way off the, the coast of New Zealand. And um, they were bringing cattle into a pen. I guess they were, they were castrating the young males. They were marking some of them. And okay. um, they were, to get them to go into the pen, they were partly just whacking them with these plastic tubes that okay. were basically kind of flimsy. Um, but I was watching them do this and I thought, oh, I wouldn't want to do that. And then they handed me one. Oh. And I was, I was like, oh, all right, you know, it's like half-heartedly whacking at these cows. But after a day of doing this, I was uh -huh. smacking them as hard as I could. Why? It was, well, it, it, I just got so accustomed to doing it and you get kind of afraid of them and you wish they would go away and you get annoyed and all these kinds of things. Okay. And I could just, it was, it was just an immediate sense of how easy it is to slip into this way of dealing with animals. I see. And um, so I think because we've depended on animals so much for, for, food for materials that we use for things we, we we have if something is of use to you um you can kind of develop a hardness about it very quickly because that you you need it to be just that um to try to consider it as an as another living being that's similar to you would might make it impossible for you to do what you think you need to do with it or really do need to do with it I, it, yeah. it, it depends on you might start having to consider its needs as well as yours. And that's not always a luxury that people have. So our isolation and our hyper self-domestication, what I'm calling that, yeah. uh, has actually maybe afforded the luxury of being able to appreciate yes. animals like the Caracara uh, in their full charm because I don't compete directly with it. I think if I were on a boat and it was taking my hat off all the time. Yeah, like they did with the, you know, they, they, they'll steal your hat. Striated caracaras like to take things that are of no obvious immediate value to them, but just because they're interested. And Darwin, this happened with Darwin. He said they took hats from the crew of the Beagle and um, a pair it of heavy incredibly annoying cattle. And, and then he said, my favorite line is he says that there's also like something like Mr. Osborne during the adventure survey experienced a more severe loss in the, uh, a, a red, uh, a small caters compass and a red Morocco leather case, which was never recovered. <laughs> <laughs> what they were doing with this compass, we don't know, uh, but it's, you know, the story, this is was just, it Hudson? Uh, who was it? Who lost his club? Oh, that was Charles Barnard, who was a, a, a man with more uh, more bravery than sense who decided he was going to make a, his fortune from seal pelts in the Falklands in 1812 and he sailed from New York and uh, all kinds of terrible things happened to him uh, but the worst thing that happened to him was he met the crew of a wrecked British frigate in the Falklands and this was since it was 1812 um, the war of 1812 had just started so America and, and Britain were at war um, but he was unaware of this but the uh, the crew of the frigate was not. And so they stole his ship out from under him and went away and, and marooned him on an island in the Falklands. That's right. He was marooned. He was very dependent on that club. Yeah. So he had a club that he used to clobber seals and penguins with. And, uh, and to survive at that point, right? It, he was in desperate. Yeah. I mean, he end, ended up surviving partly by eating that giant grass I talked about, but the uh, but also oh, he, penguin he eggs. He ate a caracara or two. Oh, he ate quite a few of them. Yeah. I mean, they supposedly taste pretty good. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the... Uh, he uh, he was surround. He was starting to gather eggs from penguins, and he was hiding them. You know, stat burying them under bits oh, of yeah. tussock grass. And the characters were just following around and digging them back up and going, "Well, thanks for saving <laughs> us the work, buddy." Two of them tried. You know, he woke up to two of them trying to eat the shoes off his feet, and uh, uh, he didn't know what to make of them. He was frightened of them. He was annoyed by them. He was also fascinated by them. He called them the most mischievous of all the feathered creation. 
in stories like that, you can see why they were called flying monkeys. Yes. Yeah. That was one of the whalers names for them. Uh, flying monkeys, flying devils. Johnny, Johnny Rooks is Rooks. the one that, yeah, that's the one that stuck. That's still what people call them in the Falklands now. I wondered if they were the inspiration for the flying monkeys in the Wizard of Oz. In the Wizard of Oz. Well, the one that's really <laughs> like that, actually, uh, or that looks more like that is the uh, the red-throated caracaras in the tropics, okay. which are quite different from striated caracaras. And in the book, to find them, uh, I went to Guyana for um, about six weeks. I ascended yeah, you, this kinda, you have a chapter on each... Yeah, there's a, well, not, it's not just like, yeah, they all appear. All the caracaras turn up in the book over the course of it. But it's not like a manual of caracaras. I mean, I, I, there's, a, <laughs> no. there's a very, <laughs> not that I would be the kind of person who would read my reviews on Amazon, but <laughs> there's an extremely oh, critical review of it that says, like, no. this is not the natural history reference that it, it, I was expecting. I was wanted to learn more about no. caracaras. And you do learn a great deal about well, that yeah, that I, I immediately for you, heaven's sake, I was like, What? But it is not <laughs> a bird guide to caracaras. Um, oh. I did not, I put just about everything that I can find about them, but there's not, um, you know, there's still more that you could go and no, look you're up. You're a storyteller, they, what it I comes up to do, in the course of stories. Yeah, I, I wanted to bring you in where I came in because I had this same question What are these birds? What are they doing here? And why are there so few of them? where the striated caracaras are concerned. And to answer that question, I had to learn about their relatives, I had to learn about their history, their evolution, their minds, and it ended up being this gigantic story about why mm -hmm. life on Earth is the way it is. You were asking a few bigger questions. Yeah, it ended up that way. And then Hudson came in and he, we follow him through some of his life as well throughout the book. But uh, his, but his accounts of his, his home and the, the animals of his home are the, the things that are my favorite in, in all of his work and just the way that he thought about other animals, especially birds, but not only birds, um, as equal to him. Yes. That was one of the things that really struck me about the, the human characters in your book. And then I've come across it a little bit in some of my research on the character, where people... Um, have that impression as we were talking about earlier where they look directly at you and they say i you know seem to be saying i have every right to be here um let me see if i can find it here amy wallace falconry and me oh yeah in, in uh, scotland i think or northern uh -huh. england yeah she, she has, has a character uh, named zorro australia yes character. yes she has a video where she's introducing you to zorro um uh, she and there's this moment, uh, you know, she tells you all about striated um, care care and all. Uh, and she mentions that Zorro is 33. And then she adds that she herself is 30. And then she has this little moment where she uh, marvels and she says she often finds herself uh, watching Zorro. Zorro doesn't want to do much anymore. You know, I think uh, Zorro might have a little arthritis or something. Yeah, you know, she can still fly, but she chooses not to. And she doesn't want to do a lot of little tasks that she's been trained to do. Yeah. Um, she says sometimes she sees her sitting in the sun, just resting, and she's wonders what Zorro is thinking about because Zorro has seen it all. Yeah. And I was struck by making her making a comment like that. Um, you had one similar, and uh, the Chimangos, they were captured and they were studied and. Um, they were released. The the ones. Yeah, they let them the, all go. The plexiglass boxes. Back, back where they captured them. Yeah. Yeah, and you imagine years or something like you say for you imagine them for the rest of their lives every once in a while. I go, what was that all about? Yeah, what was that? <laughs> what was what was happening there? 
Remember the plexiglass know, when we all got, yeah. Keeping an eye out for plexiglass for boxes that might turn up sometimes. Uh, yeah. They're yeah, very willing so, to take the world as they find it. I, you know, I was wondering, uh, what is it? it? It seems like people who know Caracara as well um, know that there's more there or, or become comfortable with that assumption yeah. that there's more going on. Like you said, they can't talk like our dogs can't talk. They can understand a great deal more language and they can't say any of it. Every once in a while, I look at my dog like, I really, he's never said a word to me. And I'm just astonished that he's never said a word to yeah, me. Yeah, but he, but he communicates with you all the time. Yeah, yeah, I have to do a double take. So I was wondering, is it just wistfulness or are people who are intimate with intelligent birds or intelligent animals of any kind, mm -hmm. um, are they aware of some depth of substance or, or of character, of personality that the rest of us aren't? Because I, I get, you know, as an academic, I get nervous around the word anthropomorphism. Yeah, it, I don't understand why that's a problem, to be yeah. honest with you. It's, yeah. it's, we have so much more in common with these animals than we don't. Um, that uh, proceeding from a place of assuming that we're utterly different um, seems a bit weird to me. I mean, I understand why you might not want to automatically assume that they have the same priorities and motives as you do um, in all ways, but gosh, in many ways, why wouldn't they? We have the same needs. And um, I mean, we, we have a lot more, we share much more than we don't. So uh, I think that in some ways, I mean, Franz DeWall talks about this, like in um, yes. Do we know how, uh, what is it, what's the name of his book? Um, are we smart enough to know how smart animals yes. are? Yes. That's a wonderful book. Isn't uh, it? That really gets into the some of the, the problems and opportunities. What a great of, title too. <laughs> yeah, of, of animal behavior. And, you know, he says that this is, uh, um, he, he doesn't have a problem with anthropomorphism. Um, he thinks it's better to, to proceed from a place of similarity than a place of difference. And that's exactly yes. where Hudson was coming from back that's in the That's where late. Jane Goodall was coming from too. Yeah. 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 I think well, we need to reclaim the word perhaps rather than. Find yeah. A new or one. it's, it's not, uh, the, it's, it's hazards are not so great that it must, must be avoided at all costs. Let's, let's talk about the brains, avian brains. I, there's this article in neuroscience news mm -hmm. that uh, it's called study gives new meaning to the term bird brain. Um, that gets that's, that gets trotted out so many times. Anytime somebody finds out that birds are smart in some yeah, hey, really rather predictable way, it's so a compliment. Yeah. yeah, if only we had bird brains. Yeah, we wish. We'd generate our neurons, you know, at a at a faster rate. We'd uh, it'd be nice You're to right. have a bird brain. Well, they did comparisons to uh, primate brains. Um, parrots and songbirds have twice as many neurons as primate brains of the same mass, so that they have. Their, their neurons are tinier. They're, they're like more microchip. tightly packed. They, they yeah, pack more into a small, a small package. Much smaller. Yeah. And when you think about it, if, if the bird has to fly, you, everything right. has been rendered lightweight, even the yeah. neurons. It, flight has put so many pressures on birds, evolutionarily speaking. I mean, there are so many constraints you're operating within in order to be able to fly that it's actually kind of no surprise that many lineages of birds have lost the ability to fly. Hmm. I mean, their dinosaurian ancestors couldn't fly. It's, it's, and they've lost flight again and again and again and again. And we still have plenty of flightless birds with us now. I mean, mm -hmm. penguins, of course, are famous, but they're like flightless cormorants in the Galapagos. There's you know, all the, the so-called ray-tight birds, the, the emus and ostriches and cassowaries. It, it's not a requirement to be a bird that you must be able to fly. Hmm. I like that line. In fact, I'm remembering a story of, of a black vulture in Pennsylvania that was injured and couldn't fly and lived through several winters just wandering around a neighborhood eating cat food. 
And at night it would go and hang out with, a, with black vultures at a roost. Um, and then in the daytime they would fly off to wherever it was and it would walk back out to the suburbs. Aww. So it's flight is a flight is Im, important for birds, but it's, it gives you so many um, constraints. It's, it's a heck of a thing to give up, but birds have done it again and again. And, but we assumed one of the things they sacrificed was brain power because the brains were so small. Oh, of, of birds in general, that because birds' yeah. brains were small, we thought that the birds were dumb. Yeah. Yes. One of the things that I read in another article, it was a Scientific American article about uh, brains are more primate-like. It was this fascinating article about all the parallels between the human brain and the bird brain. And um, the proportion of neurons in the forebrain is significantly higher than in primates. And so it undercut, this is a line from the, I think the research undercut primate exceptionalism. Yeah. 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 Well, it certainly does. I mean, (laughs) I mean, there there was a lot, uh, a lot of uh, excitement about the fact that a new Caledonian crow in Oxford um, built a tool in front of researchers. What tool did it build? It uh, built a hook. It, It took a straight length of wire, curled it into a hook and used it to retrieve something. And a primate, I don't think, has ever been seen to do that. Ah, you haven't listened to our podcast. Oh, okay. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. It's okay. It's okay. There was... (laughs) Though I would not doubt that they have. I just know it's because they haven't been seen to do it. (laughs) They were. There's this great story that Anne tells uh, early on about um, an orangutan Mm. who found a piece of wire and he used it to fashion a key to unlock. Awesome. Not only, not only did he unlock the door with this piece of wire, but he knew that if it was found, it would be taken from him. Oh, so he so hid he, it. He hid it in his lip. He bent it around his teeth. Isn't that great? Oh my God. It's like, it's like he's in lockup, like which of course <laughs> he is. And <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. The, yeah, his name is Fu Manchu. The sense of, of um, that other eyes can see, that other creatures can see what you're doing and that that changes your behavior if you know you're being watched. Yeah, that, that's what we were really geeking out on. He, he was hi- hiding it. Well, let me tell you something that I saw um, that we, was this was just published uh, recently in Wilson. The, I was working with a researcher named Katie Harrington. She's the lead author on this. The, it's just it's a note, but we were um, this is on New Island in the Falklands. We were trying to band uh, a pair of striated characters that lived near the settlement, and to to catch them, we put out a trap that was essentially just a piece of meat nailed to the ground with some uh, little monofilament lines looped around a piece of paracord attached to it. And we sat there watching this trap. Now, one of the wonderful things about striated caracaras is that um, catching them once, at least, is often not very hard. Um, they'll just come right in, even if you're just standing there. So the, we, we were trying to get these two birds in particular, and this was within their territory, so they're defending it. Well, other birds started noticing that this food was there, and the pair did a thing, did a display that they do, and they're like, this is our thing, <laughs> where they, they throw their heads back and sort of duet together. Uh, like you know, nobody else can come and take this. Um, well, this other bird that was just an adult bird, so by plumage, it was at least five years old, you can tell by looking at them, um, okay. came in and just sort of like did a dash through and they chased it off. Then it came back and it did the funniest thing. It's, it got onto the ground and it suddenly, as we watched this, it bent over, spread its wings out, <gasps> put its head down in the dis- like the display of a fledgling begging for food and started making the little tiny fledgling call, this little I'd never seen an adult bird do this before, but it was just like it was saying, I'm a little baby, I'm a little bitty baby, give me some food. And it started walking towards the trap. 
and I don't know if that was it was actually trying to fool them into thinking it was a of course baby, it was <laughs> or or if it or I mean this could just be a fairly extreme sort of submissive gesture which is just like look I just want to eat I'm not here trying to take over your territory I'm not doing this this bird is trying to get near the trap and it still can't they still won't let it near the trap so the bird hops up onto a sort of little fence and two adults are kind of glaring at it and it does the another really weird thing suddenly it straightens up and it abandons this little I'm a fledgling posture and it makes a different call and it's the call that the birds make when they want to call in a whole bunch of their buddies which is like ah, 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 and suddenly like from you know it's like <laughs> come out of the hills there's like 12 birds all suddenly descend on this place and they mob the trap now that's too much for the two uh, the, the territorial pair to deal with so they can no longer defend the trap and everybody's just in there grabbing scraps of meat and some of them get caught and we ban them and that kind of thing but it was just amazing to watch it go through this series of steps it was like there was a first like can i zoom in and grab something no can i do it by just pretending that you know hey just let me have a little piece no if i can't do that then i'm going to call in everybody and maybe i'll get less but at least i'll get something Mm -hmm. And it did this within the periods about five or 10 minutes while we were watching it. It was just extraordinary because it, it was, it seemed like it was playing these different roles, trying these different yes. ways to get what it wanted out of this situation. To manipulate the other birds. Yeah. So this is published in the Wilson Journal of Ornithology. Let me write that just, down. Just this last month. One of my favorite passages of yours was, um, I think it was early in the book and I got quite choked up actually. Um, it's very short, if you don't mind. No, go right ahead. Okay. You wrote, uh, I daydream about keeping a striated caracara in my apartment. Um, it would be the world's most exasperating roommate. But watching it build a nest of shredded t-shirts, LP jackets, and guitar strings in my bookshelf might be worth it. I can imagine it standing on my kitchen counter in the morning, tearing into a box of cereal with its beak or cracking an egg with a blow from its clenched foot, then stashing a piece of toast under my chair while I boil water for coffee. After breakfast, it might become absorbed in a dirty sock or a roll of paper towels while I try to figure out where it's hidden my keys. <laughs> All the while, I'd be thinking of Darwin's unanswered questions and a few of my own. Why are you like this? Why are there so few of you? How did you come to be? Yeah, I mean, that's those are the questions of the book and the rest of it proceeds to, mm -hmm. to answer. Which are them. similar to Darwin's questions, yeah? Well, Darwin wondered about this. Darwin said, this bird, doubtless for some good reason, has chosen these islands for its metropolis. And he, but he'd set this down um, among many of the uh, other questions that he had, and he just never came back to it. Um, well, you thought, did. You finished his work. Yeah. But, <laughs> in this one tiny little footnote, um, I could follow yeah, up. But what I want to know hmm? is where this portrait came from of your imaginary Caracara. Because as far as I know, you don't have a pet. Cara, cara. <laughs> no, those are those are all things that they do. Um, they uh, they hide things. Um, they like to stash things for later. The, the captive birds have met um, the keepers have said that they're always trying to. They're always finding dead chicks hidden in different places, like you know the the chick the chicken chicks that they feed them. Mm. Um, they they like to store food away for later. See them do this in the in the wild too. So that's one thing that they would do. Um, they also have uh, there's footage of them tearing apart rolls of toilet paper and. Uh, and then there's Tina with Jeff's keys and that kind of things. I, I took a bunch of different things that I know they actually do. And you put uh, that caracara in your apartment. Yeah, I put it in my apartment. I, I'd still, I mean, I'd love to to 
to get to live with one someday, but I don't know if I'd be up to the job. It's, it's a, it's a, it'd be a huge commitment to live with one. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like living with a monkey or. Yeah. It'd be something, be like a that. raccoon. Yeah. yeah. Or, or a parrot. Yeah. Or people say, um, they warn you that living with a border collie can be this way. You are coming up with so many research projects. <laughs> These are all great uh, theses, well, graduate theses, dissertations. The, the one I really want somebody to do is to look into the uh, this persistent rumor that crested caracaras deliberately spread fire by dropping burning sticks I, in dry that's grass. That's on my list here. Yes, that's I, a, we need to talk about that because that's, that's a, a hell of a tool. Well, they're certainly attracted to fire. Um, but a lot of a, a lot of raptorial birds, especially, are attracted to fire because it's kind of it's not unlike army ants, um, in that things flee from a fire, and so you have this stream of refugees, and so you can really uh, benefit from that. Um, I mean, there are there are an entire group group of birds, ant birds, in South America that all they do is follow army ant swarms and feast on the things that are fleeing from them, and they learn where the army ant swarms are and how to find them um, and how to follow them. So that in, in and of itself is not unusual, but this story has, this, is, this rumor has popped up again and again that crested caracaras do in fact do this. And I even found a, um, a tradition recorded among um, Calm or, or Toba people in, in Northern Argentina, in the Chaco, the tropical dry forest, that um, for whom crested caracaras, Southern crested caracaras, which are almost identical to the Northern ones, were uh, sort of regarded as these supernatural creatures who um, gave people the secret of uh, fire and medicine. You're thinking someone must have observed this in order for... Well, you wonder. I mean, you, yeah. you, these things come from somewhere and people have been very observant for a very long time. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, the discovery recently that alligators use sticks to kind of fish for birds. <laughs> when during the nesting season have you yeah. heard this yeah no i haven't heard this at all no that they'll um kind of gather some sticks and and hide under them the kind of sticks that the birds are gathering and then when the bird comes down to the water to grab the stick oh off. for a nest like they're using like nest sized twigs oh that's diabolical that's awesome yes yes and is that a tool? Is the alligator using a tool? Well, here's a here's a wonderful example of tool use from red-throated caracaras. Um, almost all the research that's been done on red-throated caracaras, certainly all the research that's been done recently, has been done by one person named Sean McCann it, on a wonderful PhD that he did, which was basically investigating the question of whether they secreted a wasp repellent or not, because it had been suggested that they did. So it's he had this sort of like, it's one of the greatest challenges in science, like how do you prove a negative? So he had to try to figure out how to, to see if this was so, see if there was any way, could you find a chemical on the birds? Could you detect it? Could you then, if you found a chemical, make it, uh, you know, assay it against wasps to see if it had any effect on them, this kind of thing. Um, Sean is just an absolutely delightful person and just one of the most knowledgeable. And one of the things that he noticed was that um, uh, because he had a nest camera on, on one of the nests, um, was that the adults, in addition to bringing the chick a whole lot of a wasp comb, which is almost all that the chick ate, but they also brought him a few other things, uh, a snail, a piece of, few pieces of fruit, and a lot of millipedes, <gasps> which was weird because um, they the chick did not eat them. The adults would sort of hold this millipede up to the chick and then bite the head of the millipede, which would kill it, and then just drop it into the nest. And so there were just dead millipedes in the nest. Uh, Sean didn't have the time to look into this in, any further, but one guess about why on earth they would be doing this 
um, is that millipedes, part of the reason they've survived for so long is that they taste really bad. Mm-hmm. They uh, have these things that are wonderfully called repugnatory glands <laughs> that if you disturb them, they'll secrete these various oils. Now, different species of millipedes, this is more and less toxic. I think I dated a guy with those. <laughs> well, they, they, uh, if, you, if you have a millipede crawling on your hand and you disturb it, it'll, it'll, it'll irritate your skin. Some of them can squirt poison from a distance. Can they? Oh, nice. Monkeys, capuchin monkeys in um, South America and then in uh, Madagascar, lemurs, um, have been seen anointing themselves with millipedes. Uh-huh. There's even footage of lemurs that kind of chew on them to get them to start releasing these secretions. And then they get all frothy at the mouth and they rub the millipede, they rub this froth sort of and the millipede all over their body. And then they seem to get really high and pass out. No. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. And, I didn't think that's where you were going with this. I really well, didn't. Well, you know, like almost all drugs are, are toxins made by plants um, or, or animals to, to defend themselves. Yeah, I mean, the, the DMT, dimethyltryptamine, is a, it was a, a compound mm-hmm. um, secreted by, actually by quite a lot of things, not just toads, but um, it has, I've never done it, but uh, apparently its hallucinogenic effects are quite intense and animals do seek it out. Mm-hmm. Um, humans aren't the only animals that, that get high. Wait, l- let's go back to the nest though. Okay, so were they, they were they getting their offspring getting high? high? No, the, the the thought was that well, I mean, probably not. Um, the, Sean wondered basically if they were using them as a kind of pest control. Oh, yeah, because uh, among other things, in the tropics, there's a lot of different things that want to uh, infest uh, the skin of young animals, that kind of thing. The uh, the thought is that maybe be, uh, they're using these as a kind of a pest control or pesticide to keep mm-hmm. down the It's like revolution. Them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you put but on your dog. How, to, to bring all this to a to head, how is this not a use of technology? Ah. And a really advanced use of technology is a chemical technology. How is that not a tool? That's a great question. Did they rub it on the chick? Um, as far as I know, no. It, it was sort of, I mean, they may be just trying to, well, we don't know. Oh, yeah. But um, he had a camera. Okay. Well, no, no. He, I mean, he, they would hold it up to the chick, and sometimes the chick would nibble at it a little bit, but they okay. didn't sort of like brush it down with the milk or whatever. But if, the, if they nibble, the birds preen. They do. Yeah. So they get it on the beak. Mm-hmm. And then... They might apply it to their feathers. Uh, yes. Yeah. Now, yeah, they might be doing it not in the nest as well. They might be sort of like demonstrating this as a technique. I don't know. Um this is this would be a wonderful project for someone to pursue. Uh, we'll include in the show notes a list exactly. of <laughs> pieces of Man, yeah, If topics. you want to study caracaras, there are a lot of opportunities to ask. There's a lot of opportunities, and it's so charming. You'll you'll have so much fun doing it too. Well, part of what I, I learned in the book in general um, was something that I had not known when I started it, which is that was how little um, we know about all kinds of things. I mean, yeah. and these are big, charismatic birds of prey. This is not a particularly hard to find animal. Um, you think about if they'll come right some, up to you. Well, yeah, some of them will. <laughs> and if you think this is this is a little, this is how little we know about this. Like, what about creatures that we can't see? I mean, the uh, the birds, as much as I like them, are um, <laughs> you might say overrepresented in terms of scientific research. <laughs> Um, you could, yeah. you'd, uh, if you described a new species of bird, you'd have a paper in Nature. Um, if you describe a new species of marine worm, uh, you can't even get it published. So it's, it's, um, there's not an equality of effort across all living things. Nonetheless, yeah, that makes um, sense. 
uh, and that's part of actually what I'm going to get into in, in my next book, I think. Oh, in, in I was going to ask way. you about what's next for you. Well, the, but the um, I was delighted, though, just to learn uh, how much opportunity there really is. Um, everything is not known. Uh, not everything known is written. Not everything written is known. And there are all kinds of questions that have yet to be asked. And that many, um, being a good scientist, I think, um, comes from the ability to look for places where the where there isn't information. But my, my friend Julia Clark, who appears in the book as well, she's a paleontologist, um, was has done studies on the evolution of the avian vocal organ that, <gasps> that birds use wow. to make sound. Yeah. And she said, and so I started looking into this and she said, what I found was a fascinating paucity of data. <laughs> and that's what you're really looking for. And that's where imagination really comes in. I think for scientists is like, where is the opportunity? Because you have to, um, it's so easy, I think for most of us to just think, well, all the information is out there. Doesn't the, doesn't the internet know everything? It doesn't. No. We don't. Our, 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 what we know about the world is, um, is very is very synced up with our interests and our interests don't cover everything. Well, we also tend to overlook things. For example, um, domestic animals, people only recently did people start seriously studying the intelligence of dogs mm -hmm. because they're right under our feet. Yeah. They weren't interesting because you take them for granted. And the same thing with, with raccoons or squirrels. Well, you know, that's actually with caracos. I think that's that they have that problem a little bit because um, either people don't know they exist in most of the world or in the places where they do exist, they're pretty common. I mean, there's a, say, a saying in Argentina, no gastes polvora en chimango, which just means don't waste your ammunition on a chimango. <laughs> like it's, it's like, it's just shorthand for, for something annoying and worthless. Uh, and, yeah. and so as Hudson observed, um, something really extraordinary is sitting here right under your nose. Yes. Uh, I was just telling my students today, right before uh, I met with you, I was I was teaching uh, an advanced dog training for um, animal acting class. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, one of the hardest things to teach, you know, I mean, it's not the hardest thing, but it, it's challenging. And it, 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 the expert tricks or the behavior chains, only the most, most committed students will bother because mm -hmm. it takes a great deal of time and patience to teach this. And um, for example, um, the trick, pick up your toys where you, you give the one verbal command and then the dog goes up and picks up a toy and puts it in the toy box or even behavior train opens the toy box, goes and collects each toy, drops it in, drops it in, drops it in, and then closes the lid. That's a behavior chain, right? Mm -hmm. So to, to teach a dog with one cue to do all of those behaviors yeah. takes a long time and takes somebody who knows how to, how to harness the drive of the dog, because why would it want to do that? It doesn't want to do that. It's an unnatural behavior. Go find Nemo. Yes. Exactly. But there was also this um, person you wrote about, or did I watch a video? I can't remember where uh, there, uh, there's a, you mentioned him as a falconer named Mike. He taught a Cara Cara to take a rolled up dollar bill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's just a YouTube clip from a, like a county fair in San Antonio. Yes. And, and put it into a slot. Yeah. For a trainer, you know, like I know how much work goes into that. I know yeah. how unnatural that is. Yes. For a bird to do that. So, yeah. I'll... It's been basically taught to use a vending machine. Yes. Yes. I, I love that you you made that connection because yeah. that's what trained dogs are doing. We're the vending machines. Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So the uh, Mike asked somebody in the audience to roll up a dollar bill. Yeah. And then he, I think he has the way I understand, because I didn't see the video. I read what you wrote. Mm -hmm. He's got the caracara and they have prehensile claws, unlike a vulture, which has trouble sitting on an arm. Um, they they can sit on the arm. And a lot of times I, I saw you referring to them hanging on to a, this, 
a fence or, or their enclosure. Yeah, they they've got really they've got a good strong grip. Yeah, like a parrot, they can hang on to the fence and and be holding like the uh, the first one that you talked about. We're holding the pen. Yeah. In the other hand, yeah. So they're very parrot like in that behavior. Mm -hmm. Dexterous. Very footy. Yeah. Footy. They actually have it. They have another. They they have a muscle in their legs that true falcons, the peregrine, the kestrel, these kinds of birds, um, do not have. What? <laughs> the, the, the true falcons lost it basically and um, partly maybe because they didn't need it but also um, it might and i don't know this have something to do with the, the particular way that true falcons use their feet to kill their prey okay so mike and his caracara um rolled a dollar bill and he takes the bird over and the bird takes the rolled dollar bill and then flies i i think you said about 30 feet yeah not very far to a yeah. post to this sort of this 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 rectangular post sitting in the ground. Yeah. And it has a, um, a slot in it, a slot for donations. There's a donation mm -hmm. box kind of thing. Right. And the bird puts the dollar bill into the slot and mm -hmm. then comes back for a treat, Yep, which is the motive it was, it did all that bit that it, it performed that behavior chain for a treat. Yeah. And then Mike says, anybody got a 20? That's <laughs> <laughs> good showmanship. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, and the, the audience is just kind of like, Ah, they're not they, that excited. They don't understand. They, they, don't they, understand. Don't, they don't know what they've just seen. You know? It's a You're big like, That's deal. Amazing. It's a really big deal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all of those tricks. Um, and I, I was struck too by how attached the people that you write about have have been to these birds, like uh, Jeff yeah. Pearson, uh, his grief over yeah, Tina. Tina died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Hudson, William Henry Hudson, um, seemed very fond of corvids and um and the, the parrot named polly <laughs> oh yeah boy that's a that's an amazing story that the hudson after he moved to england um he was surprised to meet a lot of parrots in england because they were a relatively common victorian household pet and he met one in the wiltshire downs at this inn named the lamb which is actually still there um, oh. and the widow who uh, was running the inn um, had received this parrot uh, or sort of inherited it from her late husband who had bought it in Mexico. It was a, a parrot, it's called a, a double crested or a, a, sorry, double fronted Amazon, which is okay. it's got a yellow yeah. head. They're, a, um, they're actually a threatened species, uh, partly mm -hmm. because they're so popular in the pet trade. They're known as especially good talkers. Well, when he got this parrot, um, it sang several songs and in Spanish, and it could speak certain words in Spanish. But when Gordon brought it to England, of course, being British, they had no idea how to speak Spanish. <laughs> and, uh, and so they, uh, uh, they said that they had several songs everybody loved, but nobody could understand the words. Well, over time, over several decades, this parrot changed its language to English. And uh, when Hudson met it, it was quite old, uh, but it, uh, it would eat at the table with the family in the end. And it would eat whatever they were eating, you know, eggs and mutton sure. and you know, you know, English breakfasts and whatnot. <laughs> and the uh, it loved to apparently hold a a, a, a piece of mutton in, in one foot and, and gnaw on it, you know. Anyway, so he meets this parrot, and this parrot is a total jerk to him. He cannot make friends with it. He tries to give it a piece of candy or like give it a scratch in the head, and it's just got it, it bites him hard enough to draw blood. He does not mm -hmm. want to have anything to do with him. And then he learns this story about where it came from. And Hudson, because he grew up in Argentina, speaks Spanish. And he started speaking Spanish to the bird in a sort of, he said, a high caressing falsetto. <laughs> and, so, um, and he said, and the parrot didn't, it just stared at him. And he said it made little low inarticulate sounds. It didn't suddenly start speaking Spanish, but he, it seemed really stopped in its tracks by this sound. And he said to him, it seemed as if it was conscious of a past and trying to recall it. 
Now, whether that's true or not, the effect was that this parrot was now his buddy and it would yeah. let him carry it around and it would sit on his shoulder, this kind of thing. Again, there's a, somebody could say he's being overly sentimental. He's romanticizing it. And yet. Yeah, we don't know. But no, but the evidence in the aftermath suggests that the bird, it, it the bird changed its behavior toward him. Yeah, that that it that it, it's possible that it had a memory, of course, from its childhood, essentially many years earlier, um, that he had somehow managed to to access and that it had or that had had triggered this bird. Who knows? But it's it's not certainly not impossible. No. It makes sense. And this is the kind of, this is the way that he looked at the world. And I think he was thought of as kind of like fanciful or, or eccentric or just silly sometimes. Or it was but, just the falsetto. Or, yeah, it was the tone of voice. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Um, but this kind of expansiveness and willingness to grant animals this kind of level of, of perception and intelligence, uh, I think, made him very much ahead of his time. There'll, there'll be all these studies coming out in response to your book. I hope so. I mean, one of my one of the goals I had in writing the book was that I I know that I'm not going to be the one to do this stuff. So I would love for somebody else, or I would love for some you know an entire army of graduate students to to start studying these things and thinking about them, and and bringing these birds more into into people's consciousness in general. I think it was just the fact that the uh, they seemed so interested in me. Yeah. Now I know. Um, which I didn't then, that these were very young birds. They were probably in their first or second year of life. And young striated caracaras oh. are even more inquisitive than the adults are. The adults can be a little on the aloof side. I mean, they've kind of got their things mm -hmm. sorted out, or they use their intelligence in different ways. But youngsters just get into anything and everything. And the difference between those penguins and shags, which are just like, I was a thing moving around, but as long as I didn't make any lunges towards them, it was not interesting in their world. Um, the but these birds landed and they just sort of walked up to me and like went hey yeah and it was unnerving at the time because i would never seen a bird of prey do anything like that ever i'd never seen a bird like this period i didn't know they existed i thought are they are they like gonna go for so, like you know your first <laughs> it's just so unnerving when it first happened i've heard stories about british soldiers running away from striated caracaras you know going help help and the bird like they, they like to play a game of tag with you where they they'll chase you well, they'll, you'll you'll be walking, and you look down, suddenly you see this shadow coming up over you, and you look <laughs> up, and there'll be a striated character about one or two feet off your head, just with its legs dangling. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 weird, and and you look up, and you're like, what's up with you? And um, they uh, they'll they'll sometimes they'll drop down, and just like tap you on the head, <gasps> like they're playing tag, and sometimes oh, they'll grab your hat and carry it off. But it just seems to be kind of like a game, like they're just having a sort so, of fun. Your entertainment. Yeah, you're definitely, yeah, you're just something interesting for them to look into. And anybody with a cat knows what this is like. Like you gotta get, a, get a response. Like you said earlier, the caracara just wants to interact. Yeah, they, they just... Because it's intrinsically entertaining. It may very well be that like it had had some encounter with a tourist who, you know, gave it some food, food or something before. But I've definitely met caracaras that have not seen people very much or ever um, that were like this. Um, they're just interested in stuff that they have not seen before. As one naturalist in the Falklands in the 20s put it, um, it, it any novel object is, um, uh, is, requires immediate investigation. And then he added, one bird with whom I had a slight acquaintance would play for a long time with an old sardine tin. That's wonderful. So, it's, so this was the, you know, it just, there was something compelling about them in that, in that moment. There's like, this bird wants something from me. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
when years later when I was struggling through the book and going, oh my God, why did I decide to write a book? This was the craziest decision <laughs> I ever made and I can't believe it. Um, I would flash back to that moment and I, even though this is purely magical thinking on my part, I felt like they sort of picked me. Like I felt like they came up and went, you, you're going to tell our story. <laughs> like me, why? <laughs> it's, but that's, uh, that's silly, but it is a little bit how it feels to me. Is that why you threw a pen? <laughs> I wasn't that, <laughs> I wasn't that <laughs> clever. No, it was just what I had. Oh, I, I really grew to love them. Good. If, if I put one in front of you, you would not be disappointed. Um, that was the thing I really felt was that if I could manage to, con to convey something of what they're actually like, um, yeah, you know, then, then, then other people would fall in love with them too. Yes. Well, so uh, next time, if we, if there's a next time, we can talk more about what I'm going to do next. Um, that, that's a whole other thing in itself. You tell me now real quick. You want to tell me now? I just pitched a proposal about a book about the ones in future life of Antarctica. Thank you so much. This was loads of fun. No, Lisa, it's really a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you for doing so much research and really looking into the subject and, and thinking about it. It's my um, pleasure. I really appreciate that. It's That's not always what happens. Thank you very much. Okay, All right, good night. be in touch. Jonathan Myberg's most remarkable book is The Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. It will not disappoint. Buy it for yourself and as a gift for someone else, and do so by supporting your neighborhood bookstore. Thank you so much for listening and for loving animals. Your time and devotion mean a lot to us. If you want to learn more, you'll find links to everything we referenced in our show notes on our website, thisanimallife.com. Our graphic artist is Sarah K. Martin. Our podcast theme composer is Chip Salerno. If you like this episode, please subscribe to This Animal Life on your favorite podcast provider and share it with a friend who loves animals as much as you do. Let's spread the love for animal life.